Good morning, everybody, and welcome to Overeaters Anonymous, a Vision for You speakers meeting. My name is Leah, and I'm a recovered compulsive overeater. Today is Sunday, December 16, 2012. The share code for Friday's meeting, December 14, 3506. OA Preamble. Overeaters Anonymous is a fellowship of individuals who, through shared experience, strength, and hope, are recovering from compulsive overeating. We welcome everyone who wants to stop eating compulsively. There are no dues or fees for members. We are self-supporting through our own contributions, neither soliciting nor accepting outside donations. OA is not affiliated with any public or private organization, political movement, ideology, or religious doctrine. We take no position on outside issues. This meeting's primary purpose is to abstain, to recover from compulsive overeating, and to carry this message of recovery to those who still suffer. Our sole purpose. OA's fifth tradition states, each group has but one primary purpose, to carry its message to the compulsive overeater who still suffers. At a Vision for You Big Book study, our message is that people who suffer from compulsive overeating can recover through abstinence and the practice of the 12 steps and 12 traditions of Overeaters Anonymous. I will now call on Irini to read the 12 steps. Thank you, Leah. Good morning, my spiritual brothers and sisters. My name is Irini, and I am a very grateful recovered compulsive overeater. Thank you, God. The 12 steps. One, we admitted we were powerless over food, that our lives had become unmanageable. Two, came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. Three, made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood him. Four, made a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. Five, admitted to God, to ourselves, and to another human being the exact nature of our wrongs. Six, we're entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character. Seven, humbly asked him to remove our shortcomings. Eight, made a list of all persons we had harmed and became willing to make amends to them all. Nine, made direct amends to such people wherever possible, except when to do so would injure them or others. Ten, continued to take personal inventory, and when we were wrong, promptly admitted it. Eleven, sought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God as we understood him, praying only for knowledge of his will for us and the power to carry that out. And 12, having had a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps, we try to carry this message to compulsive overeaters and to practice these principles in all our affairs. I thank you, and I pass. Thank you. I will now call on Melanie to read the 12 traditions. Good morning. My name is Melanie. I'm a recovered compulsive overeater in Minnesota. The 12 traditions. One, Melanie, press star one to unmute, please. 
I apologize for that. I don't know where that came from. The 12 traditions. One, our common welfare should come first. Personal recovery depends upon OA unity. Two, for a group purpose, there is but one ultimate authority, a loving God as he may express himself in our group conscience. Our leaders are but trusted servants. They do not govern. Three, the only requirement for OA membership is a desire to stop eating compulsively. Four, each group should be autonomous, except in matters affecting other groups or OA as a whole. Five, each group has but one primary purpose, to carry its message to the compulsive overeater who still suffers. Six, an OA group ought never endorse, finance, or lend the OA name to any related facility or outside enterprise, lest problems of money, property, and prestige divert us from our primary purpose. Seven, every OA group ought to be fully self-supporting, declining outside contributions. Eight, Overeaters Anonymous should remain forever non-professional, but our service centers may employ special workers. Nine, OA as such ought never be organized, but we may create service boards or committees directly responsible to those they serve. Ten, Overeaters Anonymous has no opinion on outside issues, hence the OA name ought never be drawn into public controversy. Eleven, our public relations policy is based on attraction rather than promotion. We need always maintain personal anonymity at the level of press, radio, films, television, and other public media of communication. Twelve, anonymity is a spiritual foundation of all these traditions, ever reminding us to place principles before personalities. And I'll pass. Thank you, Melanie. And again, this morning I welcome you to a Vision for You speakers meeting. We are delighted to welcome Joette to the line to share her experience, strength, and hope. Joette, good morning to you. Good morning, and vision for you. And thank you very much for asking me. Um, I'm an addict. My name's Joette. I've been in program since May of '09. I've been absent since March of last year. And I always start my um, talks with a uh, a prayer. So um, I take a moment and God, I turn this talk over to you. I ask that you give me the words that you need me to say, that I set aside my ego, that I set aside my self-will and my own agenda, that I can speak what it is you would have me say. Well, thank you. Um, I'm always honored um, to be asked to be spoken, and I um, always remember the first time somebody asked me to speak. I was only in program for maybe two months, maybe three at the most, and and um, talk about my ego and my disease taking over. I went to my sponsor, and I was, um, oh, somebody asked me to speak at their Super Saturday, you know, and... She was like, whoa, whoa, wait a minute, wait a minute, you know, you don't even have, you know, 30 days of abstinence and let's stop and look at this. And it was clearly my ego telling me um, that I was going to come in and I was going to come in and I was going to do something special and I was special and um, there was no God in my equation at all at that point in time. So um, since then, I have learned to uh, turn my talks over to my higher power and um, that always seems to work better for me. 
So um, I was asked to to tell you my story, um, my experience, my strength, and my hope. Um, for me, um, I don't remember a time where food uh, was not critically important to me. I have a picture of myself. I was only about three years old and was outside our home, and my father always had a weight problem, and he had the, the beer belly. And so it's a picture of me standing in front of him, and our bellies pretty much match uh, with proportion to our bodies. So I'm this short little three-year-old having this big um, stomach. So that was before I have any memory of, of eating or food, but obviously uh, I enjoyed it, and I overate. Um, and when I was in uh, first grade, it's probably the first time I remember anybody making fun of me for my weight. Um, boys calling me elephants and making fun of my size. Uh, and again, I had this kind of barrel body, uh, even as a little girl uh, in first grade. And that continued really pretty much throughout my whole life. Um, I remember uh, growing up in a household where um, my mom and dad both worked. And so Saturday morning was shopping day. We'd go to the grocery store and buy all the food. And in my house, if you didn't get um, the sweet stuff uh, the first day, then you didn't get any. And I loved my, my sugary sweets. Um, so I would uh, make sure that even if I wasn't hungry or not in the mood to eat something sweet, the cookies or the cakes or whatever we brought home, uh, I made sure that I got my share of it. And... Um, or more than my share of it. So eating was always very important to me. It was always a way to uh, soothe myself and soothe my feelings. Um, I grew up in a, a matriarchal home. My mother was definitely in charge of everything. And um, she was a very uh, forceful woman, very strong woman. Um, she was tall and uh, slender, blonde, uh, good-looking. Um, she was very um, forceful and, and very um, controlling and very much gave off the, uh, the impression that she could do anything and that she did not make mistakes and that she was always right. And I was always trying to figure out how to stay in her good graces um, because my mother grew up with a lot of anger and a lot of fear. And um, she took that out on, I had two sisters, she took that out on the three of us um, sometimes. And it was, I was the middle child, so I always felt like I was the invisible one. And it was hard to figure out how to feel loved by her. And um, in, in our house, my father was always wrong and my mother was always right. So if you were aligned with my father, then you were on the wrong side of the track. And my older sister and I both had weight problems. We both looked like my father. We took after that side of the family. My younger sister looked like my mother. and She was thin and didn't care about food growing up. So right away I had one strike against me because I looked like my father. Um, and my mother used to say um, with the disgust that uh, we all uh, lived to eat and she just ate to live. 
So right there, I made a mistake. I was wrong. She used to tell us that uh, one day she's just going to put food on her plate and not put any food on the table. Because having seconds in my house was automatic. Whether you were hungry or not, you ate seconds. Or at least I did. So I, every, virtually every meal I was overeating. And when she said that she was only going to put food on her plates and not on the table, then my little mind said, well, she's going to starve us. So I better get it now. Even though I'm not hungry, it won't be there later. So she's going to starve me because, see, whatever this woman said, it was the truth. So if, if I felt like I was a mistake in her eyes, then that was the truth. And this is where I started building uh, lies in my life. Um, part of my journey in OA has been to help me find out what my truth is. And each day to uncover a lie, something that I'm living, something that I believe on a subconscious level, that I have to figure out whether or not that's really the truth, that's really what God is telling me, or that's just what um, happened to me you know, as a child. And there was a uh, book study meeting that I went to, um, and they read uh, one of the stories in the back of the book, and it had it was uh, freedom from bondage in the big book. This is on page 544. And um, one of the paragraphs talks about, uh, well, she, she says, the medical profession would probably tell me I was conditioned for alcoholism by the things that happened to me in my childhood. And I'm sure they would be right as far as they go. But AA has taught me I'm the result of the way I reacted to what happened to me as a child. So that's really important for me to remember as I go through and tell my story that what happened to me as a child, what my mother said, how I perceived what was going on, those are two, two very different things. What my mother said and what my mother did are facts of my childhood. How I perceived them then was the, the beginning of the chain reaction of how I reacted to everything. And the rest of the paragraph in the big book says, what is much more important to me, AA has taught me that through this simple program, I may experience a change in this reaction pattern that will indeed allow me to, quote, match calamity with serenity. And again, I really like that because it tells me I can experience a change in my reaction to the pattern. And so much of what happened to me as a child in my feelings toward my mother and how I saw myself, so much of that is underlying the choices that I make today. Even today, after being in program and being absent for so long, I'm still discovering these feelings that are coming up um, because of what, because of how I reacted to what happened to me in my childhood. And OA is teaching me, and my higher power is teaching me that even though these things are a knee-jerk reaction, how I react today to my mother when she presses my hot button or if I'm feeling in another situation, if I'm feeling like somebody's going to take something away from me and I better, I better get it and I better get everything I can, I can get now because it won't be there later. This whole fear of scarcity, fear of not, be, not being enough, I can trace that back to a small child, being a small child. 
and I can see what happened to me in childhood. And God is teaching me that how I react to that today, my knee-jerk reaction to that today, can be changed. It, it doesn't have to be that way anymore. So um, my weight problem continued on through um, high school. Uh, when I was a senior in high school, I weighed uh, 224 pounds, wore a size 24 and a half. Um, didn't date in high school. Uh, at, with the exception of my senior prom where I asked uh, a boy, because I went to an all-girl high school. Um, so I asked a boy who was actually my neighbor uh, growing up. Um, so it was more like taking your brother or your cousin to the prom. So I didn't really date. Um, a lot because of my weight. And my weight also helped me justify not dating. I think they kind of went hand in hand. Um, there was some uh, sexual abuse by an uncle uh, when I was probably around 14 or 15 and never mentioned it at the time to anyone. And I think a lot of my eating and a lot of the weight problems was to, to hide my sexuality uh, in growing up. And... Um, there was a lot of concern from my parents about my weight. Um, they, my mom took me to a, a doctor who put me on the, you know, amphetamines at the time because I was born in 52, so this would have been in the 60s sometime. And that seemed like a good idea at the time. And I was in high school, and they certainly did um, decrease my appetite, but I think I got like three or four hours of sleep in the middle of, you know, every night and was wired the rest of the time. So that wasn't a very good idea. And then I went to a commercial weight loss program when I was a senior in, in high school and I lost 50 pounds and I got all kinds of attention when I lost weight. And I thought, oh, see, people like me because I'm losing weight, um, which again was my perception of what was going on. Um, so I really tied my self-worth into uh, what I weighed, whether I was losing weight or gaining weight. That determined, uh, in my mind, what other people thought of me, and and who I was. So went through college and um, uh, early career, uh, still always overweight, uh, in and out of commercial weight programs, in and out of different diets, and um, some success of you know taking some weight off, but always you know putting the weight back on. Um, met my husband when I was uh, 31 and um, got married. I had my daughter uh, in 86. And in 87, um, she had to be hospitalized and had a, a, a surgery. And so my mother, we were living in New Jersey at the time, so my mother came out and uh, to help me. And I noticed every night I just had no energy. I mean, there was a lot of stress because I had a 14-month-old in the hospital and there was all of that, but I just had no energy. And I had a, a friend at that time who was in AA and um, just marveled at um, how he talked about AA. In fact, I remember thinking, gosh, I wish I was an alcoholic because I wanted what he had. And... Um, I learned that there was a program 
related, uh, similar to AA, but for eating disorders. So I actually went to OA back in 87, and uh, I was in program for probably six to nine months. And I don't remember a lot about what what we did. I don't think I got a sponsor, but I don't didn't really work the steps. Um, one of the first things I did learn was the allergy to my allergy to sugar. And so my first uh, definition of abstinence was just to eat three meals a day, whatever I wanted during the three meals, as long as it wasn't sugar. So I abstained from sugar, and I didn't eat between meals. And I lost some weight, and about uh, six weeks later, my daughter had to go in to the hospital for second surgery, and I noticed the difference in my energy level because I had stopped eating the sugar. So I didn't feel like the program was really for me at the time, so I left the program. But I did notice that every time I ate sugar, I would just change personalities. I am a bitch on sugar. And it got to the point where, um, you know, I had a a second daughter, and um, as the kids were growing up, they all knew that I didn't eat sugar. And uh, every once in a while, I would, you know, experiment again, you know, how we go back to research and development. So I would go back to sugar just to see, oh, maybe it's not as bad as I think, and then I would just be this, you know, horrible person. Um, To the point where one night my five-year-old, I was agitated about something and I was, you know, yapping at her and, you know, bitching at her and trying to get her to go upstairs and she gets halfway up the steps, she turns around and she looks at me and she says, Mom, have you had sugar today? So it was a well-known fact that Sugar and I just didn't get along. However, at that point in time, I was still using artificial sweeteners. I was still eating fruit juice sweetened um, cookies and and ice cream. So I was still letting that that aspect of my allergy, I was still uh, partaking in. So I always had a tremendous sweet tooth. I always, you know, craved anything that was sweet. And um, I actually went to a a chiropractor at one point who did some sort of uh, treatment for uh, food allergies. So she said she could cure me of my allergy to sugar because I explained to her what happened when I ate it. And she said, you know, she could do this process. So she did this process. And I tested it out and I had sugar and it didn't change my personality. I'm like, oh, wow. Now, what... I don't know if she failed to understand this, but certainly I failed to understand that this quote-unquote treatment would work only if I used sugar in moderation. Well, that's funny because as an addict, I didn't know the definition of moderation. So I thought this meant I could eat all the sugar I want, but I just wouldn't have this personality change and I wouldn't be addicted to it. And needless to say, that didn't work very well. So... Um, My weight continued to go up and down, especially after having two kids. And my top weight um, was uh, back in around 2001. I weighed um, right around 275 pounds. So I was getting close to that 300 mark and decided I needed to do something. And at that point in time, um, I was about a year and a half, two years into a huge uh, clinical depression. Uh, We had moved 
uh, down to Florida at the time. And I call our 18 months down in Florida the dark ages because I don't remember a lot of it. I was heavily medicated on three or four different uh, medications for anxiety and depression. I was taking um, two sleeping pills, well, two different kinds of sleeping pills every night, um, two of one and one of another, just to get me through the night. And there were times at night where I could not sleep, even with the sleeping pills. And I really crawled into a very dark hole. Um, I abandoned my children. I abandoned my husband emotionally and uh, time-wise and sometimes physically just by going into my room and shutting the door, literally getting in bed and crawling into bed and putting the covers up over my head. And so my kids were in third and seventh grade at the time, and they were pretty much left to fend for themselves as far as getting themselves up and off to school and home from school. And I was there, but I wasn't really there. And I was into the sugar and into the food. And uh, I remember uh, going to uh, an amusement park that we used to go to a lot that I really enjoyed. And I actually rented a uh, motorized wheelchair because I could not walk um, from ride to ride. So it was a pretty bleak time. And I got to the point where um, I couldn't think. My cognitive ability had gotten... So my brain had gotten so foggy that I came to an intersection that was literally a block and a half from where we lived, and I couldn't remember which way to turn. Um, I'm a very visual thinker. I could picture, I can sit here today and picture the map, the exact intersection, exactly where I lived. Um, But this was like 12 years ago, and I cannot, at that point in time, I could not figure out which way to turn. And, you know, we used to joke about me getting lost down in Florida you know, that I was the queen of the U-turns because I would always go the wrong way. Oh, got to turn around. But at that point in time, I said, okay, that's it. I've had it. So I told my husband I needed help. I went to an out treatment program for depression. I heard some very interesting things there. Um, I heard um, people whining about how they didn't feel like doing anything and how the counselors would tell them, yes, but you have to do it anyway. And I thought, oh, my God, those people are a mirror of me. That's exactly where I'm at. So I went to the commercial weight loss program um, to start eating better, I told myself. And um, I went to the psychiatrist and said, get me off this medication. So uh, with his help, I weaned myself off my medication and uh, got a job and Um, I still remember I was better, I could think. Um, Depression was still there. I was still fighting uh, with it. And there were times at work uh, I would say, okay, I can get through the next 15 minutes. I can get through the next half hour. Okay, if I could just do this hour, then I'll be halfway through my day, and that'll be okay. But I did it. I took action. And um, there's a great quote I heard at uh, an OA convention that says that I won't get rid of fear without action. And so I was, my depression was definitely fear-based. It was definitely anger turned inward. And um, the only way out of it for me was to take action. So I did that, and we moved back to uh, St. Louis, because I actually grew up in St. Louis. 
And um, so we moved back here after me being gone for 30 years. And um, my sister, when we, the year we moved back, that was the year my sister discovered she had cancer and she passed away. And um, God works in strange ways because I never thought I would come back to St. Louis, yet uh, if I hadn't done that, I wouldn't have been here the day that she passed away and I couldn't have spent that day, that last day, uh, with her. So my weight went up and down um, for the 10 years we were here and I was in and out of the commercial weight program and I remember um, every time I would get down to around 200 pounds, I would panic and start eating again. So no matter how successful I was of losing the weight, um, it was my food, my eating was still all fear-based. And if I didn't have enough of that physical fat around me to protect me, then I wasn't safe. So uh, I remember one day distinctly in the shower thinking, I've got to eat more because I've got to put this weight back on. So I would do that until um, March of '09, when my then 19-year-old daughter came to me and said um, she wanted to kill herself and she felt like she needed to go to the ER so that she could be hospitalized so she didn't hurt herself. And needless to say, that was one of the bleakest uh, days of my life. And we got her into program. She was in inpatient program for about a week. I learned that she had been smoking marijuana, uh, 724. I learned that she had, that whatever she drank, she drank to pass out. I learned um, just how miserable she was and um, how she wanted to commit suicide. And when she got out, they recommended that she get into a 12-step program. So she started in uh, Narcotics Anonymous. And after about a month, I looked at her and I thought, wow, she really looks different. And I asked her one day, I said, you know, you look different. Do you feel differently? And she looked at me and she said, I'm just so happy I can feel. And I thought to myself, I want what she has. So I got back into OA. So the first meeting I went to in OA, there were quite a few people who raised their hands as sponsors. And after the meeting, of course, everyone's hugging and talking. And a woman came up to me because I told them I was a newcomer. A woman came up to me and asked me if I wanted a hug. And I said, yes. And she hugged me. And I held on to her for dear life. And she hugged me as long as I needed to be held. And after the hug, I asked her, I said, were you one of the ones that raised your hand? to be a sponsor, and she said, yes. And I asked you to be my sponsor. And she's my sponsor to this day. And no matter what else I screwed up and did in program, I always knew that God brought me to this person for a reason. And I always knew that this was the person that I needed to be my sponsor. So, of course, the first thing she asked me is, that, are, you ready? Are, you, are you willing to be abstinent? I'm like, oh, well, shit, now she's going to ask me to do stuff. Um, 
So I wasn't quite, I knew I was ready to do something, but I wasn't really ready to do something, to take action. I mean, all of a sudden, you know, I just got here. Let's take this, you know, a step at a time, which that's exactly what we did. We took it a step at a time. So um, my sponsor is a big book thumper. And um, she started taking me through um, step one with um, reading the doctor's opinion and Bill's story in the big book. And um, she told me that if I didn't take step one with 100% perfection, that I would eat again. And there's a lot of things my sponsor told me from May of 09 to March of last year that I didn't really believe. That, you know, here's this woman with decades of abstinence and recovery, and, and I'm the one that asked her. She had something that I wanted, and I asked her. But I decided I was terminally unique and that, um, you know, certainly if I didn't eat something in the evening, I, I wasn't going to make it to morning. I remember having this fear, talk about the fear of uh, not enough. Um, if I didn't have uh, something to eat in the evening, then how in the world was I going to sleep? It was going to keep me up all night. I wouldn't be able to sleep, so I wouldn't be able to work. So obviously I have to eat. This all made sense to me. This was my ego and my disease telling me this, and boy, it really made perfect sense to me. I remember her telling me, well, I never lost the sponsee between dinner and breakfast. And I said to her, yeah, but there's always a first time. So she taught me that um, step one is about honesty. And um, that was a really hard lesson for me because my, uh, my MO, my way of, of dealing with life, was dishonesty. Um, I wasn't honest about my food. I wasn't honest about my feelings. Uh, I wasn't honest in my relationships. I wasn't honest on the job. Um, I was, in fact, I was really good at, at um, being deceptive. And there's a place in the big book that talks about rigorous honesty. And I used to say that that was put in there for me because I could wiggle out of being honest. You can tell me to be honest, and I can, I can kind of fudge that enough to say, well, I can, you know, cur, you know, kind of shave this off over here, and kind of, you know, kind of be honest over here, and I can still call myself honest, but rigorously honest, that was harder for me to get around. So um, we went to, started through the steps, and I took step one and two and three, and got to four, and kind of altered a little bit there, so, you know, I ate again, and uh, this went on to, I got up to uh, step nine, and um, again, that whole uh, lie that I grew up with about making a mistake, I really believed, you know, I really did believe my mother could not make a mistake, so if I made a mistake, that was, I had to lie about it, um, you know, be if my mistake was being dishonest, then I had to put more dishonesty on top of that just so I wouldn't be found out. Because, see, the lie that I was living was a lie. I told myself that I was a mistake, that I was wrong, that my very being was wrong. So to make a mistake, even a simple little faux pas, uh, getting somebody's name wrong, that stuff would just haunt me. I mean, it was, just, it was horrible. And I would just beat myself up with it. So to get to the thought about getting to step nine where I went up to people and said I made a mistake and I'm sorry 
was that was like a death sentence to me. So I got up to uh, I would get up to step nine and then I would eat again. I would break my abstinence, and so my sponsor would take me back to step one. Well, look what I found. I found a way of not having to do step nine. That I could just get up, you know, go back to step one, go step two, three, four, kind of, you know, take my time, meander through them, get up to step nine and eat again. And this was more or less, more or less, uh, a subconscious kind of uh, activity until I discovered exactly what I was doing. And so then I decided, okay, I was so tired of going back to step one and reading Doctor's Opinion and Bill's story again. I thought, okay, well, I'm, I'm, I am going to do step nine. This was um, December of 2010. I'm going to do step nine. I'm going to change. I want that damn psychic change. By God, I'm going to bring it about. I'm hoping you, you, all, you all are hearing the I statements there. There was no God in this step nine. So I did step nine. And I got through it, and I finished it, and I wasn't changed, and I was pissed off. And why didn't God change me? And that's not fair. And I did it. I did this stupid step. And so I went through three months of I couldn't string together more than three or four days of abstinence. In the past, if I would break my abstinence, I'd get back on the bandwagon, I'd get back doing the steps, and I could you know, do three, four, five, six weeks, not a problem couldn't do three, four, five, six days. It's just like, I'm like, what happened? I could control this before. Why can't I control my abstinence now? Obviously, that was all a facade before because I thought I was in control. I thought I was doing these things. I thought I was surrendering. I thought I had taken step one, and I hadn't. So again, I went um, to hear my daughter speak, and she had three years clean and sober at the time. And I was blown away by the honesty of her talk. Again, with the honesty for me. And so I went to my meeting the next day. And I found myself talking, sharing in the meeting. You know, there's, there's times where I hear words coming out of my mouth. And I think, where in the world did those words come from? Well, obviously, those are the times my higher power is speaking through me. And so I was sharing at the meeting how I had been dishonest with the people at the meeting, with my sponsor, with myself, that I hadn't really been abstinent, that I had allowed, you know, all those little slips you hear people talk about, and those, well, wasn't quite abstinent, but it's not enough to say anything about it. I don't really have to tell my sponsor. You know, I didn't. I, I kind of went through the time where. Um, like being dishonest with my sponsor, I would I'm supposed to call her at a certain time, and I called her. Maybe her line was busy, and I think, okay, well, I'll, I'll quit call her three times in a row, like within you know a sixty-second period, so I can tell her I called you three times last night, and I couldn't get through. Well, yeah, well, it was all in sixty seconds, you know, but but you know that's my that's my definition of honesty. I was honest with her. I wasn't rigorously honest, but I was honest with her. So. Um, so that day, after the meeting, my sponsor came up to me, and she said to me, with all the loving kindness in the world, she said, you know, Joette, I can't help you if you're not honest with me. So I proceeded to tell my sponsor how to sponsor me. 
I said, well, maybe, you know, this big book thing isn't working. Maybe we should do the 30 questions in 30 days. And she says, you know, I only know one way to do this. This is the way I was taught. This is how I came through it. This is how I sponsor people. If you want somebody to do the 30 questions in 30 days, if that's what you need, then you can find somebody who can do that for you. And she wasn't, you know, turning me away. She was just saying, this is, this is who I am. This is what I have to offer. But when she suggested that I find somebody else, I knew I had screwed up and I was, I was not going to let that happen. So March of 2011, I tried something new in program, something novel. I started doing what my sponsor suggested. And it has made all the difference in the world in my program. And I want to tell you, since I've, since I've been abstinent, March of 2011, my sponsor is so much nicer now. You know, she used to make me do things. She used to, you know, like, she used to say, tell me I couldn't have certain foods. She used to make me do, you know, all this stuff on my steps, and she used to not let me do this and make me do that. And I realize now that that was my perception of what was happening when I was in the food. We had this lengthy discussion about whether I should have one tablespoon or two tablespoons of salad dressing. Now, you would have thought it was World War III, at least on my side of the conversation, because the container said a one portion size was two tablespoons. And by God, if it said two tablespoons, I, was, I deserved two tablespoons. And all she was trying to tell me was that if I use one tablespoon, then when I go out to eat, I will be used to having less dressing and less likely to overindulge in dressing when I go out. That's the, she wasn't telling me I couldn't have two tablespoons. But in my mind, that she was making me. She, was, she, wasn't, she wasn't gonna let me have that. So um, March of last year, I went back to step one. And I did do step one a little bit differently. Well, a lot differently. Um, but one of the things I did differently was uh, instead of just reading through Doctor's Opinion and Bill's story, I started Doctor's Opinion and I read until I got to something that spoke to me. And I stopped right there and I wrote it down on my journal and I wrote and I wrote about it. And I started calling my sponsor every day. And I would read to her what I wrote. And I cannot tell you how wonderful a tool journaling has been for me. And I always tell people, I knew coming into program, journaling was a very powerful tool, which is why I never used it. Because when I first came into program, I was too scared of what journaling was going to have me see. I didn't want to see the truth that were going to come out if I sat down and I journaled. Now, in my program, I can't imagine journaling. I can't imagine not journaling. It is such an important part of my recovery. But for me to make journaling three-dimensional, I have to read it to my sponsor. I have to read it out loud. And there have been times where I have journaled, called my sponsor 10 minutes later, read it out loud, and said, I don't remember writing this part. So obviously, journaling is the way my higher power speaks to me in this program. 
The other thing I do differently on journaling is I write in second person. I found when I was reading out loud, just about every sentence was I, I this, I that, I this. And I thought, you know, I really want this. Journaling is part of my meditation. It's part of God speaking to me. So when I journal, it's all about you. I, it's, you know, you need to let go. You need to turn this over to God. You are reacting this way to your mother. You are feeling this way. So it's as if God is really speaking to me. Um, so as I said, we did step one uh, with the big book. And um, I, love, I love the big book explanation of step one. I love that it tells me what my problem is. Like my sponsor told me, uh, you can't, you can't, you know, have a solution if you don't understand the problem. You know, what are you trying to solve? What is the definition of my problem? Well, my problem is twofold, and it says uh, in Doctor's opinion, the body of the alcoholic is quite as abnormal as his mind. So I had to admit that my body does not react to sugar like quote unquote normal eaters do. It just doesn't. And that's neither good nor bad. That's just a fact. That's a fact of my life. It's an allergy as if somebody was allergic to seafood. They wouldn't eat seafood anymore. So I'm allergic to sugar, so I don't eat sugar anymore. I also had to realize, with the help of my sponsor, that I had to put down artificial sweeteners. Because for me, um, artificial sweeteners just trigger the same mental obsession and actually the same physical craving as the sugar does. Because my sweet tooth now has gone away. I don't crave sugar anymore. And I don't think that ever would have happened for me if I hadn't put down the artificial sweeteners. Um, so my body is allergic to anything that sweetens, sweetens things. And my mind is as, as abnormal as my body. And in fact, I was in full flight from reality. Um, and the, the big book also says, but we are sure that our bodies were sickened as well. In our belief, any picture of the alcoholic which leaves out this physical factor is incomplete. So I had to know that I had this physical allergy and I had the mental obsession. Um, if I, first thing I had to do was list all my binge foods and stop eating them. And in working with sponsees, in working and then just reflecting back on how I felt uh, at the beginning about giving these things up, I have to kind of laugh at myself that it was such a big deal to me, like the two tablespoons of dressing. Actually, it was only one tablespoon I was arguing over, but how important that was. Why was that so important to me? And I realized that that's all fear-based. That's all my fear of there's not enough, fear of something being taken away from me. And this program has given me so much that I can't imagine giving up the, the recovery and the truths that I've learned and everything I've learned about myself and how to interact with people and everything about life, giving that up just for sugar. I mean, it's just, it just isn't worth it in my mind. Um, 
And I like that it says in the big book that the message which can interest and hold these alcoholic people must have depth and weight. And that takes me to step two, which is where we get the hope. And um, step two is came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. That tells me I was crazy before. Because if I had to be restored to sanity, then at some point I must have been insane. And truly I was insane with my food. But not only with my food, but with with my values. I mean, just the whole dishonesty thing in my life. Uh, it's so much easier. I, I can't believe how easy it is for me to, to look at my husband and make an amends because of what I did wrong. And we've been married for 29 years. And it's only been in the last year that I've been doing that. So I spent 28 years not apologizing because it just, I couldn't imagine admitting that I was wrong. And yet now I do it and it's its refreshing. It's refreshing for him and it's refreshing for me. It's like this, this weight has been lifted off. So step two is all about hope. And I grew up uh, Roman Catholic. Um, I always believed in God, I, but I never trusted God. I never wanted to turn anything over to God. In fact, it's interesting. I told my sponsor the other day, you know, since I'm in, uh, in recovery and, and um, you know, working this program, I remember at the beginning I would turn something over to God and then I would explain to God exactly how God needed to handle it because God needed my help. God needed me, you know, needed a, a few um, hints as to what, how things should come out. So talk about your ego. And so I said, you know, and now I'm, uh, it's amazing because God has really got some good ideas lately. I mean, I didn't really agree with what God wanted, you know, two years ago. But now, wow, God's really on track. I'm really impressed about how, how far God has come in my life. And obviously that's my ego who thinks, you know, that I know more than God. And I would love it if, at this point in my life, I always believed that God knew better than me. But there's still times, I call it my, my last two bites of toast. There are times, you know, when I weigh and measure my food and I have my food on my plate and I look down, I remember one day looking down, I had two bites of toast left. Just two bites, just that's all I had left. But I was full. I said, this is not fair. This is my food. You can't take my food away from me. This is mine. I weighed and measured this. On my food plan, I called it and I did everything, God, I did everything you wanted me to do. I want these two bites of toast. And God's saying, but you're full. Uh, but, but, the, but it's my food. Don't take it away from me. And God is slowly teaching me. God's telling me, I have something better for you than two bites of toast. I have something better for you. And there are times where now I look down at my plate and when I'm full, I stop. But there are other days where I think, oh, but I just, I just want to eat just a little bit more. And so what I do is I say, I make a deal with God. Okay, I'll get up, I'll you know, put the dishes away, or I'll you know, do this, or I'll, have, I'll do a reading, um, you know, a daily meditative reading. And if I'm hungry after I do the reading or the activity, then I'll finish what's on my plate. And 99 times out of 100, I am truly full, but it has taken me a long time because I have abused my body and abused food for so long, it's so hard for me to get in touch with, am I really full now? And I still eat too fast. So the fullness 
is a del- is, is delayed sometimes. So I'm still working on slowing down my eating and getting in touch in my really full. And also trusting that God will get me from lunch to dinner, even if I didn't finish my whole lunch. And then um, step three, so they says, we make a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood him. And I love to hear people's understanding of their higher power because I love the fact that we all have a unique way of viewing God. We use different words. We use different images. We use different feelings. And at one point, I looked at God as um, a, a trinity where there was, I used the term God for part of it, and that was kind of a tip to my upbringing in the Roman Catholic Church and and you know God the the Creator and everything, and then the second part of the Trinity for me was Goddess, because I really liked the, the concept of Goddess being love, and and having this warm loving embrace and a female aspect of a higher power, and then the third part was the Great Spirit, and so that was my triangle. And the Great Spirit was kind of a tip of my hat to Native American or Earth-based religions of nature and you know, all that I see around me and the beauty uh, that I see around me. And since then, it it has changed. And now my concept of my higher power is I still have three pieces to it, but it's love, beauty, and truth. And the love, again, is with the goddess and and that for my higher power is just this infinite love that I'm always accepted just as I am. You know, goddess doesn't love me, can never love me less and never love me more because it's just it's just infinite, it's just everything. And then beauty. Uh, for me, I, one of my purposes in life is to share my beauty. And one of the things this program has helped me realize, I used to say this program changed me, and I don't say that anymore. What I say is I, have, I change who I show you. I have changed how I see myself. Because the more I see who I really am, the more I see the beauty in me. And what has really helped me do that is being a sponsor. And I just want to encourage anybody, if you've got enough time and program, enough recovery, and your sponsor's you know, encouraging you to be a sponsor and you haven't done that yet, it is a huge gift that you not only give to other people, but you give to yourself. And I sit and I talk to my sponsees and I listen to them and it's, I, I just see this incredible person inside of them. I hear their pain. I identify with them. I understand, you know, when they talk about the food and then they, they stop talking about the food and they talk about their real feelings and how it scares them when their feelings come up. And I'm like, I've been there. I know that. And when they're sobbing on the other end of the phone, I think, oh, this is good. This is, you know, they're really getting to it. You know, my sponsor tells me, step one, if you really take step one, it's messy. It's not fun. It's messy. It's really getting down to your feelings and letting them come up. And I see these beautiful people that I talk to, and I realize that's what my sponsor sees in me. She sees a beautiful person. And so if she can see it, then I can learn to see it as well. And I need to share that beauty with other people. 
And then the third part of my higher power is truth. And this is, it's critical for me to learn my truth, to learn what is truly real in my life. And my ego is not real. My ego and my disease are not real. They tell me they're real, but they're not. The only thing real in my life is God, is my higher power. And my higher power gives me lessons every day to learn what my truth is. And then steps four and five, doing the inventory. Again, it was sharing my inventory with my sponsor that made it real. It was breathing the life into it just like I do my journaling. It wasn't enough for me just to write it all down to admit to myself and admit to God. I had to admit it all to another person. I had to put it out there. And I had to learn that my sponsor would love me no matter what I told her, no matter what I did in the past, that she would still accept me as who I am. And then steps six and seven, being ready to have God remove these defective character and asking him to. I had to learn that it's God who decides what needs to be removed. That what my job here is to be willing to let it go and to learn to align my self-will with God's will. The big book tells us the only time it's okay to follow self-will is when it's in alignment with God's will. So step eight and step nine, um, again, were important to me. And when I went through them, this time being abstinent, and I went through my step nine, the very last amends I did was to a college roommate. And we hadn't seen each other since 1974. And I actually tracked her down on the Internet. So word of encouragement for people who are doing step nine, and there's people in your past, if you really work at it, you can find people. It's just, it's just amazing. If, 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 it's, if God is meant for you to find them, you will. So I actually found her on the Internet, hadn't seen her or talked to her for that, since 74, called her out of the blue, you know, did a little chit-chat at the beginning and said, you know, I explained to her that I was in a 12-step program and that, you know, I needed to make amends. And I had actually stolen some money from her uh, in college. So I told her I did that and that I wanted to, you know, pay her back and she wouldn't allow me to pay her back. So I said, I will donate the money, that amount of money, to, you know, a charity that, you know, is in line with her beliefs. And she said that was fine. So we went on to get caught up for like, 40, we had like a 45-minute talk. And at the end of the talk, she said to me, you know, I'm so glad you stole that money because otherwise we would have never had this talk. And I thought to myself, God really does work in my life. God really does have a plan for me. You know, I, I clearly see that my mistake was not my mistake in stealing the money did not make me a horrible person. It wasn't even good or bad. It just was. And just like the night that my daughter came to me and said she wanted to commit suicide, that, that was a very dark night. But look at all the good that has come from that. I mean, my recovery, my getting back in the program, that was the catalyst for me. You know, stealing the money, that was a catalyst to have this huge miracle moment with a woman that I probably never would have talked to again, yet we both felt so good after that conversation. So 
it's interesting as I look back how much step nine did change me, but only when I let God direct me and and I stopped being the director. And then step 10, continue to take personal inventory. And when we were wrong, properly admitted it. Well, I got to tell you, the first time I got to step 10, it was like, oh, good. Every day I get to, I get to figure out what I'm doing wrong. You know, I get to, every day I get to figure out what my mistakes are. And that's not what it is at all for me. It's really just looking at my day and saying, okay, you know, number one, do I need to make an amend? You know, is there something I did or said? And number two, what can I learn from today? What am I doing? What am I doing that I want to change? And this program has really helped me realize that what I used to think of uh, doing God's will um, was a, a chore or a sacrifice. And now, slowly, I'm beginning to realize that doing God's will is a privilege. I'm blessed. I am honored to be chosen by God to do God's work. You know, I... Um, the resentment prayer is a wonderful prayer. I've been having a lot of issues come up lately with my mom. And I say the resentment prayer that, you know, that she, this is a woman in pain. The woman carrying around, she's wounded. She's carrying around a lot of pain. She has fear. She has anger. What can I do to make it better for her? Which, you know, honestly, the first time I said the resentment prayer, I realized I was trying to make it worse. I was trying to punish her. I was judging and condemning her. I was trying to, you know, with the thought of saving myself and, you know, something that I needed, what I was really doing was making my thinking that I was better than her and making her wrong. And I'm like, no, that's not it, you know. I don't know her whole story. I don't know why she's doing what she's doing, but I know that she's in pain. What can I do to help her heal? God, take this anger from me. Help me let go of this anger, and may I do God's will. So resentment prayer has helped me tremendously to learn the truth, to learn what I'm really feeling about things. And then step 11, thought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God. Uh, That's wonderful. I mean, that's the solution that this program offers me, my conscious contact with God. And I can tell when I'm in sync with God. I can tell it's like, my, the tension of my body drains out and I feel the love and I, I physically feel different, I emotionally feel different and it, it's an amazing feeling and I can tell when I get out of sync. I can tell when I have increased food thoughts, when I'm suddenly thinking about food and I'm you know, planning, well, what am I going to have tomorrow? What am I going to have for the next meal? And I wonder if I could do this or maybe I can eat that. And I'm like, wait a minute. When my food thoughts increase, and this is part of step 10, is I need to look at my food thoughts for the day and tell my sponsor, my food thoughts are going up, that is a red flag to me. That means there's some feeling or some issue I need to deal with. So I need to make sure that I pray to God that I am open to have these feelings come up. And sure enough, I go through this pattern of dreading these feelings. I call it kind of an emotional vomit. You know, when you have the flu and it's inside of you and once it comes up and out, you feel much better. That's how I am with my feelings. But I try to keep them down when in reality it's harder anticipating letting go of my feelings than actually letting them go. So I'm learning that lesson to just go ahead and let go of my feelings, get them up and out, express them, and then I feel better. And it's really God who takes me through that. 
if I'm fearful about doing that, it's because I forget God's there. And what I'm learning in this program is that God is always there. My higher power is always with me. I'm the one who turns my back. I'm the one who shuts my heart down. I'm the one who is not aware, not consciously aware or in conscious contact with my higher power. So when I do my prayers, my spiritual tools for the day is every morning before I get out of bed, I say my prayers. I pray for people in my family, and I ask basically for that God's will be done in their lives. I bless them with love and beauty and truth, which is my higher power. I take steps one, two, and three before I get out of bed. I admit that I have no control over food and that my life sucks if I try to manage it. I tell myself that there is a power greater than me that can restore me to sanity. And most days I think, thank God, there is a power greater than me because I'm screwing it up royally. And then I decide to turn my will, my self-will, and my life over to God today. I can only do it for today. That's, it's just, that's all I can handle. And then I read every morning and I journal. And um, I call my sponsor. And unfortunately, I, well, fortunately, I started a new job in the last two weeks, but that's kind of thrown a monkey wrench into our schedule. But um, before that point in time, I call my sponsor every day, and we're trying to get back into a, a good schedule to do that because that's very important to me to do that. Um, and then another thing that I started doing is every time I wash my hands, I pray. Uh, it could be the serenity prayer. It could be a gratitude prayer. Um, but I, if I wash my hands, I pray. And it's just kind of a trigger. Uh, I also pray before every meal. Uh, before I eat, I close my eyes and I ask God that this food nourish my body just as God nourishes my soul. And sometimes I, I add more that I'm grateful or to help me do something or whatever, but just basically I want, this, I want to view food as nourishing my body because that is the gift that God has given me. God has given me the gift of food to nourish my body. I need a body that is physically strong enough so that I can do God's will. Um, and then I have, I talk to my sponsees every day, if they call me. I do my 10th step every day. And when I go to bed at night, I say my prayers again. And my meditations are throughout the day. And sometimes it's just a moment of, oh God, you're there. I'm so glad you're there. Thank you for being there. Or uh, a, a meditation of uh, gratitude. Um, I don't do a 10 or 15 minute, you know, mind blanking kind of thing because that just doesn't work for me. Um, and then step 12 is having had a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps. We try to carry this message to compulsive overeaters and to practice these principles in all our affairs. And I like in the big book, in the doctor's opinion, where he talks about, um, he's telling the story about Bill W. And he says, later he requested the privilege of being allowed to tell his story to other patients. And I love that always struck me that he requested the privilege, that it wasn't a chore for him. It was a privilege to share what he had been given. And I love the program teaches me that I, I can't keep it unless I give it away. Um, I love being a sponsor. It, as I said, it has just it has helped me tremendously. There have been times on the phone where I hear myself talking to a sponsee and thinking, "Damn, I got to do that myself. That's really good advice." <laughs> or 
um, mostly it's, uh, I say my favorite sponsor prayer, which is, God, I got nothing here. I hope you got some words for it because I have no idea what to say. And there are times that I will hang up from a sponsee's call and it's been, you know, something, you know, revealing or whatever. And I think, I don't remember what I told her. And so those are God's words to her, not to me. And they're meant for her, not for me. And other times God's words are meant for both of us. Whenever a sponsee thanks me for something that I have said, I tell them that was God. And I have one sponsee who says, well, I really enjoy our three-way conversations then. So in closing, I have, um, I really like the um, story that I started out with, the freedom from bondage. The last paragraph, uh, that on page 553 in the big book is, this great experience that released me from the bondage of hatred and replaced it with love is really just another affirmation of the truth I know. I get everything I need in Alcoholics Anonymous. Everything I need, I get. And when I get what I need, I invariably find that it is just what I wanted all the time. And with that, I'll pass. Thank you, Joette, for sharing with us what you used to be like what happened and what you're like now. Thank you so much for sharing your transformation of thought and attitude. We are grateful. And now I will open the line up for any questions anyone might have for Joette this morning. Press star 1 to unmute. Uh, Leah? Yes. Leah, this is Rita, compulsive overeater uh, in Connecticut. I listened at the beginning, but I did not hear where Joette was from or her phone number, if she'd be willing to give that out. Oh, absolutely, Rita. Um, I'm from St. Louis. Okay. My number is 314. Wait a minute. (laughs) Yes. Okay. 314-323. What, wait, honey, 314-214? No. Let me start over. 314-33-5976. Yes. Seven, six. All right. And I don't know what it, time you're in. I don't know what this is. Central. St. Louis. Louis. Central. Yeah. Central? Thank you. Three one four three three five nine seven six. I'm missing a number. Okay. It's three one four three three two three. Three sixty three. Three two three. Yeah. Five nine seven six. Thank you so much. Oh sure. Thank I you, Joette. Thank you. Any questions for Joette this morning? Press star 1 to unmute. Hi, this is Katie, a compulsive overeater. Good morning. And Good morning. And um, I just wanted to know, at, 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 during your story, you said that you had a hard time getting past um, that any time you got to 200 or close to 200, you um, 
you know, would would get back into the food. And I'm just wondering if you, since we can't see you, um, how your physical recovery has um, progressed in this uh, 19 months that you've been abstinent, or however many months it is. Yeah, the um, when I actually came into program May of '09, I weighed 242, 244, somewhere in there. I, I currently weigh 138. Wow, that's amazing! Thank you for sharing that. Mm-hmm. And it's it's interesting because I have never in my life, obviously, I weighed 138 at some point in my life, but I wasn't at this height. <laughs> so, um, you know, growing up, I was always always carried much more weight than I than I need to for my height. And I really thought like the commercial weight programs had my uh, ideal weight at like 150, 160. And when I came into program, my sponsor said, you know, don't worry about your weight. It's none of your business. Don't set a goal weight. She said, just let God take care of that. So all I did was, you know, follow my food plan and and actually, I got down below 138, and so it was kind of like the pendulum at the end that my body kind of came back to that. And I've been at that weight for over a year now. So I'm pretty pretty sure that's where my higher power wants me to be. Well, that's great, and that is um, the freedom that we get. The, it's not just emotional and spiritual, but we have the, the physical freedom, too, that allows us to have the energy and the... Um, stamina to do all that life has for us. So um, congratulations, and uh, thank you so much for your story. It was very good. Thank you very much. I do have to go now to on with my day. So thank you so much. Thanks, Katie. And I do tell people the physical recovery is the smallest change that my higher power has made in my life. Thank you, Katie and Joette. Anyone else? Hello, Joette. This is Rose. Hey, Rose. Um, I would like to, um, first I want to thank you so very much for your sharing and your story and starting off with the prayer that you did. I I feel like God really, really opened up your channel to us who are listening to it. And I personally just want to say thank you, thank you, thank you so much. Um, I do have one question about um, you. You spoke so much about sponsoring, and um, the question I have in my mind is: Do on sponsoring, do you have any qualification that you sponsor people who are on the same food plan as you, or do you sponsor people on a different food plan? I'm I happen to be on OA ninety. That's where I finally got my abstinence after 38 years. So I'm, um, and I'm just seven months abstinent today. And um, so I find, I mean, I've sponsored, the only people I've sponsored so far are on that particular OA uh, program. And I'm really wanting to learn from God through my recovering brothers and sisters here. Um <clears throat> I, w- I just need to learn about it, you know. I don't want to. I don't want to be close to sponsoring because, especially everything that you spoke of in, with sponsoring, um, I just have so much to learn. So, if you could share, you know, about that, I'd really appreciate it. And 
with that, I'll pass. Thank you so much. Well, thank you, Rose. First of all, congratulations on your seven months. That's terrific. Happy birthday for seven months of abstinence. Thank you. Um, when uh, March of uh, last year, when um, I listened to God and my sponsor, God told me to be a vegetarian. So <clears throat> I'm a uh, currently I'm a vegetarian, and so I don't require my sponsees to be vegetarians. Um, the first thing I do with the sponsees, as far as a food plan is figure out what their binge foods are and have them list that. And I have them write it down and email it to me because I find <clears throat> it's, it's helpful for me as a sponsor to have it written down because my memory is not what it used to be. Um, and also I find it important to have them commit on paper what their binge foods are. Um, mm -hmm. so, so technically nobody I sponsor has the same food plan that I do. The one thing that, the one issue for me is um, I don't know what I would do if I had a sponsee who said that they could have sugar. Um, because that's such a huge part of, of my allergy, my physical allergy. And I was in denial for, in it for so long. Um, and I have heard people who are sponsors who don't sponsor people unless they're willing to put the sugar down. Um, now, God has not presented me with that issue, so I don't know what what I would do. Well, what I would do is I would pray, you know, at that point in time um, to, you know, what can I do to help this person? And so I'm open to whatever food plan they want, but, I, like, I've had sponsees, for very short periods of time, that I would question what they had on their food plan. Like they would tell me, you know, sugar is an issue, but then they, you know, would, would be consuming something that I pointed out to them had sugar in it. But then suddenly sugar wasn't part of their problem. So those, once I started questioning those kinds of things about their food plan, and again, I try very hard to do what my sponsor did. I question them, I ask them, I give them suggestions, I encourage them to look at things on their food plan. I try really hard not to tell them, you can't have this, or you shouldn't have this, because it's their decision. It's between them and God. One thing I've learned about honesty, for me, is, this is something I've learned recently, is that being honest with God is almost an oxymoron. God already knows what's in my heart. Mm -hmm. God knows better than I do if I'm being honest. So if I'm holding on to something, because like my sponsor likes to say, you know, yeah, when you first in program, you give your, your sponsor your list of binge foods, but you keep one or two back because you know she's not going to let you have these. You know, well, God already knows you're not being honest about that. I have to, when I admit it to God and to my sponsor, it's really helping me admit it to myself. So my job as a sponsor, if if their food plan is just different from mine because they eat meat, that's not a big deal. But if they're doing something that I think that they're being dishonest with themselves about or with their higher power about, then it's my job as a sponsor to point that out. I don't know that I would ever not sponsor somebody because of their food plan, but I've never really been in that situation, so I can't say what I would or wouldn't do. Does that answer the question? That's really beautiful. Um, 
it it um it really helps a lot because <clears throat> you know i've um I'm about to do a fifth step here, and uh so to say the least i'm I'm not free from fears um a lot of old fears and um the food plan that I've gotten abstinent on I'm very attached to, and um I also can see you know behaviors repetitive behaviors in myself throughout all these years um that um it's always an outside structure or formula or plan uh that's the the savior and then god it, you know what i mean i i leave god out of the i have left god out of the equation and so much of your talk and your sharing um in just uh you know your relationship with your higher power and God, I see, is first is the starting place for me, um, because I I don't have sponsees right now. I have had sponsees, and due to me and whatever other the situation is, um, I don't have them now, and uh, and I don't you know I don't want to make mistakes with sponsoring, and at the same time I need to. It's like you were saying um, about. You know your higher power is love, beauty, and truth, and the beauty you so much brought it out of being a sponsor. You know I I can't. You said it perfectly for me to hear, and um, and I just know sponsoring is key. And I've I've been wanting to. Um, it's easy to find sponsees, um, but I've noticed since I've lost my last two, I'm really hesitant to screw over anybody else, whether I screwed over them or not, you know, just from my own fears. I just don't want to do that again. But what what you said, Rose, yes. thank you so much. Thank you for the question. You're welcome. Can we move on? We'll move on now to another question, please, if that's okay. Any other questions this morning? Yes, yes. Yeah, my name is Sarah Grace, and I'm wondering how Jolette takes people through the big book um, to do the steps, um, because it seems like there's a number of different methods, and I'm wondering what's worked for her in leading people, leading sponsors through the 12 steps. <clears throat> well, at this point in time, um, I uh, step one is obviously doctor's opinion and uh, build story, and um, we read that. Um, I use a uh, an outside source as well um, that just basically helps them look at their entire life, uh, going up their relationships, social relationships, um, family of origin, um, work, career, finances, um, pretty much every aspect of, of their life, and how food uh, plays a part of that, how um, Food has been used as an escape, uh, as an emotional tool, um, and just kind of going over uh, kind of a mini bio kind of thing. And then we go over that, and I have them read um, Doctor's Opinion and Bill's story. They can either read it all the way through and write about it or read it you know, line by line, paragraph by paragraph like I did. And when they feel like they can take step one with 100% assurance, then we go on to step two. In step two, we read, there is a solution more about alcoholism and we agnostics. 
So we read through that and I ask them um, what they think the solution is to their, to their problem. And then we go on to um, step three and how it works and pretty much just follow in uh, the big book when it talks about the different steps, about taking the inventory. I do a, um, a matrix uh, on the different aspects of step four uh, for the inventory. You know, we sit down, we talk about it. Step six and seven, we read in the big book. We, we pray about it. I have um, um, I haven't gotten the sponsee past uh, step three yet. But what my sponsor did was on step three, I actually say this. I said the third step prayer at my home meeting. I get down on my knees and say the third step prayer at my home meeting, and I do the same thing for step seven. I get down on my knees and said step seven, and then um, again using uh, the big book on eight and nine, just the the writings in it. Um, to make the list start, you know, going back to the list of resentments from step four, that's the start for step eight, and then add anything to that. And my sponsor was very good at encouraging me not to spend, you know, a lifetime on step four <laughs> or um, step eight, because just asking God to bring up what needs to come up at this point in time. And I didn't look at step four or step eight as having to be perfect because the only step I can take perfectly is step one. But just what needs to come up now, because as I go through the rest of the program, other things will come up and I will be, be able to add them on. And then um, step nine, for the people that I could not contact, um, I wrote letters to and I read the letters out loud to my sponsor. And then... Um, you know, 10, 11, and 12 pretty much are my daily steps and just basically following what what's in the big book. Um, unfortunately, I can't give you the exact page numbers off the top of my head, but, you know, when it talks about step 10 and, and how to do, you know, to either do it at the end of the day or the beginning of the day, whatever is whatever works best for me at that point in time. Um, you know, was there a specific step that you had a question on as far as how to do it in the big book? Or? Hi, did you just ask me a question, Gillette? Yeah, is there, was there, that's kind of an overview of how I use the big book. Is there a specific question you had on a specific step? Uh, no, uh, no, I, I just, you know, to be honest with you, I've been in program 24 years, and for the most part, I've had a few sabbaticals, and there seem to be, you know, as many, I mean, there just seem to be many ways of working through the big book, um, which I've done, the steps through the big book, and I've done the steps, you know, through the big book in a variety of other ways, and so I'm always curious to know how people do, and that's, you know, that's useful for me, both in you know, making a decision to go through um, the steps again with the sponsor and, and also in sponsoring. So, you know, I want to know what works for other people. And, and so I appreciate um, how beautifully you, um, you know, went through the steps, you know, and shared how you do it. And, um, and, and also thank you so much for your qualification. So it's, I just found out about this meeting um, and I'm just, feeling blessed every time I go. I think this is, well, actually, this is just my second meeting, but it's just been a blessing, so thank you. 
Thank you, yes, Sarah Grace. I, it has go really ahead. helped me. It has really helped me to go to big book study meetings and you know, and meetings like a vision for you. Because I used to read the big book, and I used to go to big book meetings thinking, well, the goal here is to to read as much as we can in one meeting, as opposed to you could read one paragraph in one meeting, and it could be a beautiful meeting. So it's really rather than quantity, looking at quality and taking my time. And even back March of last year when I did Doctor's Opinion and Bill's story, it didn't matter how long it took me to get through it because I was going through it in such depth and was allowing my higher power to lead me through it, and that made all the difference in the world. Well, you know, thank you, thank you for sharing that because that that's also really helpful because, you know, I, I mean, I just love the first 164 pages. I find them just, you know, such a blessing and, and heartfelt. And, you know, really the big book is my um, instruction manual for living. And um, there, you know, there are people that go through the big book very, very rapidly, and then there are people that really go through a very slow process. And and so I'm always curious to know, you know, what what works for people. And 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 for me, you know, having, you know, time to really digest and think about what it is that I'm reading, and and really gather the the meaning. Um, you know, me, me, it's sort of like, you know, having, having, um, you know, the opportunity to really digest what I'm, what I'm reading as opposed to, um, you know, fast and furious, but, you know, there are different ways and, and they work for different people. Thank yes, you. And isn't, that a blessing? isn't that a blessing that we, everybody, nobody has to work my program and I don't have to work anybody else's program. Well, you know, I love we it also. Yeah, I mean, I also love that 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 you know that you leave the food plan up to the individual because I do that now as a sponsor. Sorry about that. I got that recording. Um, you know, I I now really you know turn turn um, their their life and their will over to the care of the God of their understanding. And like you, I mean, I don't have anybody eating inappropriately. But you know, I don't. I don't tell them what to eat, and and I used to, you know, be in the in in particular food um, programs where there is a food plan, and so it, it is a different thing. And you know, again, just like working through the big book, people finding their way of abstinence, whether it's you know in a committed um, food um, food program, um, you know, where there is a food plan, or whether somebody goes to a Nutritionist or somebody knows what it is that they can eat and what measurements work for them or, or how hard do they do it. I mean, not everybody has to weigh and measure. But, again, you know, that's the wonderful thing about this fellowship is finding our way um, that works for us so that we can remain sane and sober and learn and grow. Um, you know, and for me it is Thank about you. a fit spiritual condition. I pass. Thank you, Sarah Grace. Thank you. Any other questions this morning for our speaker, Joette? This is Maggie in California. Maggie, go ahead. Thank you. I would like you to explain to me what it means to you that the first step is the only step that can be taken perfectly. Would you explain that? Thank you so much. Sure, Maggie. Thanks for the question. Um, 
if I'm not 100% convinced that I'm powerless over food, if there's just 1% of me that thinks that I have the ability to control my food, I will eat again because I have the belief that I'm in control. That it's like, <clears throat> like from May of 09 to December of 2010, I, I felt, well, part of me felt like I could control it. I'm like, well, I'll break my absence. I can always get back on the wagon. And it wasn't until those three months of, you know, last year of 2011 that I was like, oh, my God, I, you know, I did this before. Why can't I do it now? So there's a saying that, you know, I have, I know I have one more binge left in me. I just don't know that I have another recovery left in me. So if I were to break my abstinence now, I don't know that I would ever be able to get back on, get back into program, to become abstinent again, because I have no control over that. I have no control over that first bite. If I don't give that first bite over to God, I'm screwed. I, there's nothing I, I, Joette, can do to keep me abstinent. Abstinence is a gift from my higher power. I choose to accept that gift every day, but I need that gift every day because I cannot control my eating. I tried. Believe me, I tried, and and it never worked. Even in program, I tried to do it on my own. You know, I thought it wasn't a big deal to have a quote-unquote slip. It wasn't a big deal to take an extra bite here or there, but it is. It is a big deal to me because if I start that, there is nothing in my power to keep me from from eating my way back up to 275 pounds plus. Because <clears throat> my disease, while I'm in recovery, is over there doing push-ups, and my disease is getting stronger and stronger. So the only way <clears throat> I can I can enjoy the gifts that I have received in this program is to admit to myself and to God every single day that I am powerless over food. I don't have any power over food whatsoever. <clears throat> the only thing I can do is turn it over to God and ask God, what do you want me to do? Tell me what to do. Am I done eating this meal? Am I, you know, should I take these last two bites? Should I finish this meal now? I don't know. I have no clue, God. You've got to help me here. So if I can't do that, in fact, about three or four months ago, I got this feeling that, you know, I guess it's my ego, you know, my disease talking, you know, I'm doing really well here. Look, I lost all this weight. I've kept it off for a year. Aren't I great? And I, and I started to have food thoughts, and I told my, my sponsor, I said, you know, I'm, going, I'm taking myself back to step one. I'm going back to the big book for the doctor's opinion. I'm going to start writing on that because I feel myself moving away from my solution and towards my problem. And if I'm doing that and then I'm going to eat, you're going to take me back to step one anyway. So I may as well skip the eating part and just go back to step one now. Because the other thing that I had to learn, and this was really hard for me, was that I'm either moving towards my problem or I'm moving towards my solution. I am never standing still. I am never treading water. And I have to say that with emphasis now because I still hate that thought because like, no, no, it's okay, I can tread. No, if I think I'm treading water, I'm in big trouble. So I'm, even move, I'm either moving towards relapse or I'm moving towards recovery. I'm either 
improving my conscious contact with God or I'm moving towards my problem. If those are the two choices, I have to look at, I have to make myself look at absolutely everything I do and put them in one of those two categories. That's really helpful for me to realize that I'm either all in or I'm all out. You know, I am powerless over food. I can't do it. God can do it. God can keep me abstinent. God gives me that gift every day, but it's not me. It's not what I did. It's like the first time I worked my step nine, that was I, I, I. And, yeah, I made some amends, and, you know, the disease gives you a little bit of a facade of control, but I wasn't in control. That wasn't, that wasn't my truth. That wasn't what I needed to be doing. I needed to be turning my will and my life over to the care of God. And it's the care of God. That's the beauty of step three. It's the care of God. God only wants what's best for me. So I hope that answers it. Thank you so much, Joette. Thank you. Hi, this is Randy from Key Largo. And thanks, Randy. Maggie, and go ahead. Go ahead, Randy. Thank you. Okay, thanks. Um, I wanted to know, because I have done this several times as well, and I loved the way you presented your story. It was just beautiful. Um, but I, one of the problems that I have had is that one, um, you shared that once you started losing weight, you would go back and you would, like, sabotage yourself. And I was wondering how you overcame that. Um, lots of talks with my sponsor. Lots of talks about um, sex, about my sexuality. <clears throat> uh, talks about the sexual abuse. Um, being able to admit that I was sexually abused. Being able to admit that my uncle groomed me um, because I always thought that... Um, uh, yeah, I was the, the middle daughter, and, and my older sister was closer to my father. My younger sister was my mother's favorite, and that left me out with nobody. So it was my uncle who made me special. So my definition of being special was that, that my uncle loved me. And to think that he actually groomed me um, as a, a sexual abuse victim uh, was really hard for me to accept. <clears throat> so a lot of my uh, protection from the weight was... Um, uh, involved my whole sexual being and my uh, definition of being special and uh, understanding who I am. <clears throat> so it took a lot of work uh, with my sponsor uh, going into territory I was very uncomfortable talking about um, and uh, realizing, you know, coming below the, the 200, that 200 pounds that suddenly men weren't flocking to me and... <laughs> you know, asking me to go to bed with them and whatnot. Um, so it was, it was a process of, of realizing my truth, of admitting, uh, accepting uh, what had happened to me and the impact that that had on, on how I saw myself and learning to trust God that my higher power got me here, my higher power is not going to leave me now. So it had a lot to do with learning to trust God, that God has my best interest at heart, that God has something better for me than weighing, you know, 220 pounds, that God's going to take care of me and protect me. So that, with that, I'll pass. Thank you very much. 
Thank you, Randy, for the question. Anyone else? Questions for Joette? Good morning. This is Lori in Atlanta. Hi, Lori. Go ahead. Good morning. I would like to ask um, how Joette was able to become honest um, because my mind works that I want to continue to cover and not share, um, you know, when I've fallen off the wagon or when I've eaten something that I I have no business eating. Um, Just all my life I'm used to covering and making, you know, putting that best face forward and smiling. And um, that's how I was taught in my family of origin that, you put on an outward appearance of everything just being just right and being perfect, regardless of the ugliness behind, you know, the um, picture that you're portraying, you know, outwardly. Um, so how do you break through that cycle and that mentality of, of dishonesty, um, of covering your tracks and, and trying to appear as being perfect, even when you know that that's very far from the truth? And I'm going to mute and listen. Thank you. That's a great question, Lori. Um, I certainly can identify with that family of origin where the outside uh, has to be one thing and you can't can't let them see what's inside, you know, what your secrets are. Um, I'm actually an adult child of a, I'm an an adult grandchild of an alcoholic. My mother uh, can be considered a dry drunk where she exhibits the some of the symptoms of alcoholism, but she doesn't have the physical allergies. and so one of the, the symptoms of growing up in an addictive home is you have secrets. And our secrets kill us. And, you know, the monsters under the bed are only monsters until we shine lights on them. So I can certainly identify with not wanting to share, you know, at a meeting if I, you know, if I broke my abstinence. <clears throat> um, for me, I was actually um, chairman of uh, our retreat committee one year, and I broke my abstinence. So I had to go to intergroup to let them know I could no longer chair. And I had to go to my home group and let them know that I had broken my abstinence. And you know what's interesting? And you ask how to do that. It's it's a little step at a time. For me, it was just small steps. Um, and observations. I would go to meetings and I would watch other people share. And I would hear them share when they break their abstinence especially, you know, somebody who had maybe a year or more of abstinence and then they broke it and how hard it was for them to talk about that and how they were crying and how much I admired them for their honesty and how I watched these people grow because they were honest, because they did share who they were at that time that they did share how hard it was for them. Um, I And my sponsor's at my home group, so she always encouraged me to tell my home group when I did break my abstinence. So, and I did that. And it was embarrassing to have to keep doing this third step prayer over and over again. Um, but that was all part of the process of me learning that I was the only one concerned. I was the only one counting how many times I did the third step. No one else really, 
you know, they were always glad that I was at the third step again, that I was moving forward, not that I had to have re- had repeat it. Um, we all have our own journey, and I have learned through mine that if I share with you who I really am, who I truly am inside, I get so much acceptance and love and other people share who they are with me, and it's such a beautiful gift. And I can't have those gifts if I'm not honest, if I'm not willing to be honest with God, with myself, and with other people. And it just, you know, just as we, just as I learned that being dishonest kept me, quote, unquote, safe, I'm learning that being honest not only keeps me safe, but I get a lot more out of life by being honest. And so it's kind of relearning and and reestablishing a new pattern. So the short answer is small steps at a time. With that, I'll pass. Thank you, Lori, for the question, and Joette. Any other questions this morning? Star one to unmute. Questions for our speaker this morning, Joette? Hi, this is Heather from New Jersey. Hi, Heather. Good morning. Hi, good morning. Good morning, Joette. Thank you so much for your story. I really enjoyed listening to you. I got so much out of it. Um, I'm wondering if you could talk about um, your relationship with your mother today. You spoke a lot about uh, what it was like living with her and how that affected you. And um, I was just wondering if, you know, how your relationship was and how you feel about her today. That's a very interesting question. <laughs> um, one of the things I'm learning is my relationship with my mother has nothing to do with her and everything to do with how I react to her. She's um, 86 years old. She's not in, in real good physical health. She's certainly not in, in good emotional health. And um, I have an opportunity to learn to accept her as she is and love her as she is and do what I can to create healthy boundaries. And um, before I started my new job two weeks ago, I, I saw her like two or three times a week. And there would be days where I would just think, you know, I can't wait to get out of here. And I would hate those feelings because she's 86 years old. I don't, you know, she may not be here a year from now. And I would hate to to lose her without feeling like, you know, I've come to peace with 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 her. And so my relationship um, comes and goes depending on how willing I am to just accept her as she is. And it's amazing because she can do the same thing each visit. And I can tell when I tell him, you know, 
doing my 10th step or talking to my sponsor about it, just how I am choosing to react to it. And it's really important for me to realize that this is what I am choosing, that my happiness is a choice here, that it's, you know, like I read about that um, freedom from bondage. It's not what happened to me in my childhood. It's not what happens when I interact with my mother. It's how I choose to react to it. And the more I say the resentment prayer, and the more I realize that she is in pain and she doesn't know how to increase her conscious contact with her higher power, and that's why she's unhappy, I can say, okay, God, thank you for the lesson that this woman is a mirror of me. And invariably, when I look at what she's doing, it's something that, that's reflected back in who I think I am or what I do, whether it's judging people or you know, being upset about something or trying to control something. I realize that that's just God. If it's upsetting me, it's because there's something about myself that I'm not accepting as well. So I treasure my relationship with my mother at this point in my life, and I'm very grateful that I'm in, you know, she lives in St. Louis, as I do, and I have the opportunity to see her and to, to learn the lessons that, that my higher power is giving me to really accept and to let go of my anger and my resentment. And, you know, quite frankly, there are some days that I do that better than others. So with that, I'll pass. Thank you, Joette. And Heather, for the question. Any other questions this morning? We have our speaker, Joette, on the line, here to answer any questions you might have. Yes, hi, this is Susan. Good morning, Susan. Go ahead. Good morning, thank you, Leia, and thank you so much, Gillette. What a what a wonderful, rich qualification. Really quick question. When you referenced a matrix for the fourth step, are you referring to the four columns in the big book? Could you expand on the phrase matrix? Thank you. Okay. Um I have to find this in my big book here. Um Yes, it is. It's just the making columns and rows um, out of what's in the big book on it. Let me see. I can find this real quick. The fears, resentments. Let's see. Okay. Uh, so step four on page 64 talks about how resentment is our number one offender. And uh, fears, resentments, sexual problems. Um, actually, uh, if, you, if you want to send me an email, I can send you a copy of that matrix because I don't have it at my fingertips. My email address is joette. J-O-E-T-T-E Martin, M-A-R-T-I-N, at hotmail.com. I'll repeat that. It's Joette, J-O-E-T-T-E Martin, M-A-R-T-I-N, at hotmail.com. I'd be happy to send you that matrix. 
and it, it helped because it, I didn't have to write volumes. Um, the first column was like who the resentment was, like my mother, you know, and then what I resented her for, you know, controlling. And then it looked at um, the different, it's been a while since I've looked at this, different sources, you know, what did it affect in my life? Did it affect me, you know, socially? Did it affect, you know, personal relationships? Did it affect career? Did it affect sexual relationships? And then, um, um, I don't remember the rest of the column. But it basically goes through, it takes the verbiage from step four in the big book and makes columns. And I just put it in a spreadsheet and and filled in the columns, or filled out the, the rows, and then went across and filled the columns. And it was very interesting because then when you, you're done and you check, you know, if it affects, you know, your personal relationships, you put a check mark there. If it affects your social relationships, you put a check mark there. And you see the pattern of how everything affects different areas of your life. So it was it was it was interesting at the end of it to step back and take a look at um, all the check marks in it. And then when I went into step five with my sponsor, I went through, you know, each of those and what I what I had checked off. And then if I had missed something, she asked, well, doesn't this really affect you financially? Or didn't this affect your sexual relationships this way? And so she helped me, you know, sometimes even add in additional check marks that I didn't realize that it had affected me as much as it did. But I'd be happy to share that matrix with anybody who sends me an email for that. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Susan and Joette. Anyone else? Going once, twice. And three times. Okay, I'll take that as a no. Again, Joette, thank you so much for your time this morning and uh your heartfelt share and sharing your your uh, experience, strength and hope with the line. Great. We are grateful for your time. And I will close with a reading from page 164. Our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who is still sick. The answers will come if your own house is in order. But obviously you cannot transmit something you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him is right and great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is the great fact for us. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you until then.